Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys and have you guys all back in town. Let me just say, uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at Grace Bible. And uh, for you guys, if this is your first time to Grace, or if you are of the class of 2017, can I get an amen? All right, this is church, people. Come on. All right. Uh, but it is a great joy to have you guys back in town as we kick off a fall with you guys. Uh, there's still some seats on the aisles here in the middle. If you guys are trying to find a spot in the back, you're welcome to come on up. Um, we are going to be in the book of Daniel this morning, Daniel chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel. Uh, I still use my table of contents, and I've been to seminary, so it's okay if you need to as well, all right? Uh, Daniel chapter 1. As you guys are turning there, let me ask you guys a simple question this morning. Have you guys ever been in an impossible situation that you felt like you had no good options in? Have you ever been in a sense between a rock and a hard place and thought you had no way to turn left or right and you were in a tension that was unresolvable? One of those moments occurred for me the summer after I graduated here from Texas A&M University. I was helping lead one of our mission teams to a Muslim country in Central Asia. I was leading one of our teams. Our uh, Southwood Main Service teaching pastor, Blake, was leading another team. And the first day in this Muslim foreign country, he and I had the job of going to an electronics store uh, and buying a bunch of electronics, all right? We needed to buy a series of TVs, a series of DVD players, all right? And so we went to kind of Electronic Row, all right? You guys know Chicken Finger Row on Texas, right across from campus with Canes Lane right? Uh, and then the, the other op- option that's always kind of going in and out right there, all right? Uh, well, this was kind of electronic row, if you will, all right? Uh, it was their Best Buy, their Circuit City, all these kind of shops right in a row, all right? So we go there and we begin to kind of negotiate and haggle for a series of TVs and DVD players. And we eventually kind of get to a, a spot where we landed on a price and we are ready to pay. And so Blake and I begin to pull American dollars out of our pockets to pay and the owner of the shop freaks out on us. Uh, what we hadn't realized was that it's actually illegal to pay with cash. And so here we were trying to break laws, all right? And so there we were. And so the, the owner kind of freaks out on us and he says, and he kind of motions us to come in the back room with him. So Blake and I begin to proceed, begin to walk towards him. And he says, no, 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 just one of you. So I, like the courageous man that I am, I let Blake, who was my older guy, kind of go right in front of him, right? I was like, Blake, go ahead, like a lamb to the slaughters. I don't know what's going to happen. It's been a good ride. It's been a good friendship. I'll pray for you, right? So he goes back, uh, and I don't know what's going to happen, all right? Uh, As I'm waiting on him, police are literally walking up and down the street in front of the store window, and so I'm just there by myself, not knowing what's going on with Blake, and I'm freaking out, all right? Eventually, Blake would come, we would return unscathed uh, with a receipt for our electronics, and so we would take these TVs and these DVD players, we'd load them in a cab, and we'd head off. We'd get back to our apartment, and we would unload them up three flights of stairs, and then Blake would eventually take off. About two minutes later, a knock comes to the door, and in this country, there was an inner door and an outer door for each apartment, all right? So I grabbed the inner door just thinking it's Blake that he forgot something. I open the inner door, which makes a really loud noise, and I'm reaching for the outer door that I'm going to push open, when all of a sudden, before I do it, I hear the sound of loud, barking Russian voices, all right? And so in a heartbeat, I conclude this is what's going on. The Russian police have arrested Blake. I'll probably never see him again, all right? Uh, they've come to arrest me, our team. They're going to kick us out of this Muslim country. We're going to be interrogated. It's all over. All the things that we had dreamed about, it's over. It's done. So I've immediately concluded that, and I've responded swiftly to do what any brave man does. I find the other guy in the apartment, and we go as far away from the door as possible into a back room, all right, where we literally begin to shake and cower with one another in a corner, all right? Uh, the guy that was with me, his name was Travis. He was in the core at the time. Any of you guys in the core? Can I get an amen? All right, maybe a few of you, all right. Uh, this guy was in the Corps at the time. He would go on to do para-jumper rescue for the Air Force, all right? So this is not a girly dude, all right? A manly man, all right? 
And yet we are in a corner, literally not just huddling, but cuddling, all right? We are holding one another because we were just shaking in absolute fear, all right? And this is no exaggeration. I've never come so close to just wetting myself, all right? I was just terrified, all right? I was just scared out of my mind, all right? Had no idea what to do. At one point, we began to army crawl, like, through the apartment, like, to stay away from the windows. I have no idea why, but we just thought it was a great idea, all right? Uh, And so here we were in a foreign country, all right? with a task that we felt we had been called to, but we had no idea how to live out our faith in this culture as a minority group, all right? In many ways, we were experiencing a tension because of our faith that we did not know how to resolve or how to deal with. Obviously, that was not your textbook, classic, courageous Christian response, right? And there we were. In many ways, that's obviously a bit of an extreme example, but I'd submit to you guys this morning that for every single one of us who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, who's trusted that Jesus' death and resurrection forgave us of our sins and has given us by grace as a free offer and a free gift, eternal life. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of what he's done, let me submit to you this, that you live and you experience daily attention because of your faith as you try to figure out how to live it out and walk it out in the cultural context that we live in. It may not feel as extreme as living in a Muslim country figuring out how to walk that out. But in every context, in every situation that we walk into, there's a tension that we experience because of our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's to that tension I want to speak this morning. It's to that tension that we're actually going to speak all fall in a series that we've entitled Culture Matters, all right? Uh, We've recognized that as we walk through culture, in many ways, there are a lot of issues that are going on. There's a lot of hot-button topics that are being discussed, And as a church and as a college ministry, we don't want to be silent on those. We want to speak directly to them and walk straight into the fray, if you will. And so this semester, we're going to go all over the map from social media and art to politics to economics to sexuality and even homosexuality. We're going to go all over the place. Social justice, any of those relevant topics that are being so discussed about and so bandied about, we want to go straight at them and speak to them. Because every single one of us is trying to wrestle with how does our faith relate to the cultural context that we're a part of. And what we want to do is speak into that tension that every single one of us feels and give you guys some uh, tracks to run on as to how we walk that out. In fact, this morning we're going to jump into Daniel 1 that I think I've been actually wanting to preach this text as the beginning of a fall for years. I think Daniel 1 absolutely sets up as the most perfect text for a group of students who are entering into a university year or maybe for the first time into an academic college setting as ever before. I think for every single one of us that we wrestle with, how does our faith relate to a university and academic setting? Daniel 1 is one of the most ideal passages that speaks to that. So all semester we're going to wrestle with how does our faith intersect with our culture This morning, I want to narrow in a little bit more simply and ask, how does our faith intersect with a university setting that every single one of you, I'm sorry, will be in this upcoming week, right? You guys are all excited to be back in town, but you guys have to, can't avoid the unavoidable reality that school that starts tomorrow. I'm so sorry, right? But it's coming, right? And so I want to speak to that and give you guys, in a sense, a paradigm to understand how you as a believer in Jesus Christ are to step into that context. And I promise you, I think Daniel 1 will surprise you, all right? Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, if you have your word, uh, open it up. We're going to be Daniel 1, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Daniel writes, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. 
Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, it describes, historically speaking, a great reversal that occurred in Israel's cultural situation and circumstances. In a moment in 586 BC, the nation of Babylon comes in and they conquer the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah. And it was their foreign policy at the time that when they conquered a group of people, the Babylonians were intense, they were severe, they were incredibly harsh. One of the things they would do, though, as they would conquer people is they would then deport them off of their land, out of their familiar context to a place that was much more unfamiliar to them. And they would scatter them out so that they were easier to be, to, easier to be controlled. Why? Why would a nation do that? Because for a conquered people, if you could assimilate them and spread them out and then take them somewhere that was foreign, it was much easier to assimilate them and control them. So what you have happening here in Daniel 1, verse 1 and 2, uh, as it's being recorded, is that you see for Israel, the nation of Israel's circumstances, in a heartbeat, they change. In a heartbeat, they go from their land to a foreign land. In a heartbeat, they go from their king to a foreign king. In a heartbeat, also the, uh, the text talks about the treasury. In a heartbeat, they go from their own economy to another economy. In a heartbeat, they go from their religion and the worship of their God to a temple and a religion that is completely different than theirs. And one of the first things I want you guys to see this morning from Daniel 1 is this. One of the first reminders I want you guys to think of is the fact that when you show up next week on campus, whether that's Blinn or A&M, Daniel, like you, you are a minority. If you know Jesus Christ, you are a minority as you step upon those campuses. And specifically, you are a powerless minority. Daniel and the people of God are deported and they're put under a foreign king and a foreign economy and under a foreign religion. They are a minority group who's powerless in this new situation, these new set of circumstances. And let me submit to you that you are the same. You are a minority group who's stepping into a situation that you do not control the economy, the politics, or even the classroom, right? That is the situation that you guys are stepping into. I think in many ways, Daniel 1 could set up like any classic movie trailer that exists that's out there. Uh, I absolutely love movies. I love going for the movie trailers themselves. And I've often thought, why does every movie trailer seem to have the same actor's voice, right? It's the same guy, it seems like, every time. And it seems like they all start with the same three words, in a world, right? And they're all in a world or in a time or in a land, right? There stands one man, right? It's like every single movie that exists is like that, right? In a world, there stands one man who will rescue all of humankind, right? I think the movie uh, trailer people would have had a heyday with Daniel 1. In a world of political oppression, there will stand one man who will rescue a people and return a people to the worship of the one true God. That's Daniel 1. Daniel faces impossible odds as he steps into a situation that he does not control. In fact, as you look at it, Israel is not just a powerless group. They are a placeless group. The text says that they are deported and they are put in the land of Shinar. If you know your Old Testament, the first time we ever run across the land of Shinar is Genesis chapter 10. What happens in Genesis 10 will actually be in that very passage in two weeks, actually. But in Genesis 10, we find the first worldwide rebellion against God, Tower of Babel. The nations gather one place, they build a tower to rebel against God, to make a name for themselves. And it's in that place, the land of Shinar, that the land that Israel is deported to and scattered among. All right. It's fascinating that they're going to be scattered and brought to the very place that was the epicenter for a worldwide rebellion that occurred the first time we saw a city happen on the map, all right? And that's where Israel's brought back to. They are a placeless people, all right? Uh, they don't have a place. They don't have control. They don't have an economy. In many ways, what's fascinating to me as you look at verse 2 is that God allowed this. God caused it. Notice verse 2. Then the Lord gave Joachim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God allowed this. God caused this. It doesn't seem good in any way, shape, or form. Why? 
One of the first things we're going to highlight for you guys as we walk through this series on culture is that it is often the case, if not the majority of the times, that the people of God are not the majority party in control and a culture at large. More often than not, through world history, the church, the people of God do not stand in control of politics and economics. More often than not, they are the minority group in the culture at large. All right? But why? Why is God doing that? Why does God allow that? What does God hope to have happen? I think of the nation of Israel as they were deported, placed under a foreign king in a foreign economy, under a foreign religion. I think they became clear, clarified on two things. I think it became very clarified for them as to exactly who they were and ultimately what they were called to do. I think that kind of minority status for us as the people of God always clarifies our identity and it clarifies our calling. Anytime that we're placed in an unfamiliar place and we're powerless, we get really clear really fast as exactly who we are and what we're called to do. I'll tell you guys, I've never been in more of an unfamiliar place and never felt more powerless than when I had an opportunity to go swimming with sharks, all right? Um, I have no idea why people pay for this, all right? It was a horrible experience, all right? Uh, we were on a boat, which is incredibly rocky. We get brought out to this one spot where there's swimming sharks that you can go swim with. It just sounds awesome, right? Uh, and so they're swimming below. You can see them in the water, all right? And here were the instructions that the guides gave us, all right? They said, one, we're going to throw a rope out for you, all right? And what we want you to do is get out in the water, and hold on the rope and just get to the end of the rope, right? Which meant the first person out was the last person in, which I got volunteered as a guy. So I was the first person in the water, all right? And they told us two things, all right? They said, one, don't show the whites of your palms, all right? Hold the rope tight. If you open up and you show the whites of your palms, the sharks will come visit. Wonderfully encouraging, right? Number two, they said, don't be afraid. If you're fearful and you're scared, they'll sense it and they'll come visit, are you crazy, right? Like, what in the world? Who, is, who does that, right? Third of all, here's the other thing that was shocking to me, right? Our, our guide, our trip guide, all right, our, our, uh, our safety guide, all right, I don't mean to be rude, but it was as if his face had been put in a blender, all right? Scars everywhere, which also when you're on a shark trip, you're thinking, where did the scars come from, Right? Was it with the sharks? And why are you leading us? This is not going to go well, right? But I had a real quick, real quick, clear sense of one thing. I knew who I was. I was not the shark safety guy. I knew I was, if trouble came, I knew who I was and who I wasn't. I wasn't the guy that was going to get in front of a shark, right? I was going to let that guy do it. He's already got the face for it. Let's just let him continue, right? Second of all, I knew exactly what I was going to do, right? I was holding on that rope at all costs, all right? I was really clear as to who I was and what I was called to do. For you guys, on a Sunday morning like this, as people show up at churches, as the fall begins, it's easy to think, and there are, there are a lot of believers, a lot of people who want to know Jesus and walk with Jesus in this place. For some of you guys, as you guys show up at Breakaway this upcoming Tuesday night, there will probably be more than 10,000 students who will gather to worship and to know Jesus. But don't be confused by those evidences that you are thinking that you are a majority if you know Jesus on this campus. Statistics say that over 80% of those who are on campus may not know Jesus and definitely are not involved with the Bible study or church. If you know Jesus and you want to walk with Jesus, statistically speaking, you are a minority on this campus. All right? That doesn't mean that we need to huddle together and just live with one another all the time. All right? But what it means is you need to know who you are. Let me give you guys a couple ideas. One is uh, in terms of your identity. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes to the church and he says, Reside as aliens scattered throughout. And he lists a whole bunch of uh, provinces and, and areas. For you guys as students at Texas A&M and Berlin, you are resident aliens. 
I know none of you are hoping to live in College Station the rest of your life, right? You're hoping to get out of here if you're a freshman in four years, and maybe five, and maybe six. I don't know how long it's going to take you. Some of you guys are on your sixth senior year. You're wondering if God will ever allow you to graduate, right? And your parents are saying, how about now? Come on, let's go, all right? Um, right? So some of you guys, every single one of you are resident aliens. You're just passing through. And you're scattered throughout a series of different degrees, a series of different majors. And the question is, why has God put you there? Why has God put you as a minority in different degrees and majors as a temporary resident alien here? What is his calling upon you? I think it's simply put, it's the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, Jesus says to the disciples and to the church, and I will repeat for you guys as well, here is what your calling is. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded them. Your responsibility is to know Jesus and to make him known. If you're here this morning and you're checking out church and you're checking out spirituality, let me just say the biggest decision you will make this semester is not what classes you're taking. It's not what girlfriend or boyfriend you may have or what's going to happen. The biggest decision you could ever make this semester is what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. One who took on human flesh, one who died on your behalf so that you could have a relationship with him, so that you could be reconciled to him, not on the basis of good works, on the basis of whatever it is you could do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you that he would stand in your place and he would take a death that should have been yours and he would take it on himself and he would offer himself to you. And so that simply by belief, by receiving that free gift, you can enter into an eternal long relationship with him. It's the greatest gift you could ever receive. That's the greatest calling and invitation you will ever get. Not, to, not toward someone's hand in marriage, but ultimately toward a marriage that is eternal with the one who has created you and designed you and loves you intimately and wants you to know him. If you know Jesus Christ, and the, the greatest calling you have at this point in time is to make him known as you step into dorm rooms and classrooms. And whatever degree and whatever major you're a part of, the greatest calling you have in your life is to make Jesus known and to make disciples. First, you have to be a disciple to make a disciple. And so learn and grow in your faith so that you can begin to share with others what you've grown and what you've grasped. That is your calling. That is your primary syllabi this fall, is to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. I don't care what shows up on your syllabi come Monday and Tuesday when you get syllabus shock and you're just overwhelmed, you're wondering how you're going to have a life, right? The greatest calling you have is to know Jesus and to make him known. Don't get confused or distracted by that. Second thing I want you guys to see is as a minority in this university setting, I want to talk about your education, all right? As a minority stepping into an educational system, your education is one that is all-encompassing. It's going to be for Daniel and it's going to be for you. Don't be confused. The education that you're receiving at a and and Blinn is an education that will move beyond the classroom to the bedroom, to the dorm room, to the boardroom. This education will be all-encompassing and training you the ways you are to think, to speak, and to act. That's what education does, all right? But first, let me just say, it is an amazing privilege. Who gets it? Notice Daniel verse 3. Uh, not everyone gets this opportunity. Not everyone in Daniel's day, not everyone in your day, all right? Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Who gets this opportunity in Daniel's day? The royal family and the nobles. In high school terms, this is the student body presidents. This is those who are really rich and well off. But it's not just them. Also, youths in whom was no defect who were good looking. These are the athletes and the cheerleaders. You know who you are. Some of you are here, right? Uh, and then lastly, the group that I was a part of in junior high and high school, the dorks and the nerds, the smart people. All right, uh, here they are. So those who are showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. 
Not everyone would get this opportunity in Daniel's day. Not everyone gets the opportunity that you guys have as you step toward ben, Blinn and A&M in the coming days. I hope you know as we talk about culture and as we talk about education, some of the things I want to say about it, you are in a privileged position. Do not take your degree. Do not take this opportunity for granted. Not everyone has this opportunity. So the question is, how will you use it? How will you take advantage? How will you take and get all that you can out of what God has put on your doorstep and a part of your life for the next four years or so? Not everyone gets this opportunity. In Daniel's day, the cream of the crop got it. And in your day, the cream of the crop get it as well. If you're at A&M or if you're at Blinn this upcoming year, you are the cream of the crop of our country. Uh, we often say around here, uh, we feel as a church, we're called to raise up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. We recognize that Anim and Blinn are the future leaders of our country. Uh, it's, you, it's been, uh, others have said before that if you win the campus, you change the world. You guys are tomorrow's leaders. And this educational setting is your training ground as leaders in a university setting and also hopefully even at a church setting. You are being trained as leaders who will impact our culture in a way that very few others will in the coming decades in terms of our future era, even as a country. You guys are in privileged places. You are the most influential of our country. It was true in Daniel's day and it's true in your day. But the question is not just who gets this opportunity, but ultimately what are you going to be learning? Notice the text for Daniel. Back again to uh, verse four. Uh, They were endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them for a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And so it's biblical, Texas A&M should have a three-year degree program. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome, right? I'm just kidding, all right? Uh, don't run away to your professors. Hey, the Bible has said, right? That's not what we're talking about with culture, all right? That's not what we want to do, all right? Uh, so here's the deal, though. What were they to learn in Daniel's day? The language and the literature of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Uh, The education for three years was to train them and to teach them to think, to act, and to speak like Babylonians. They were from Israel, from a foreign land, and they were being educated and trained to think, to speak, and to live in a certain kind of way. Make no mistake about it. Your degree and your education is not just bookworm knowledge, all right? It is all-encompassing. It will train you to think, to speak, and act in certain ways that extend far and above beyond the classroom. In fact, some of you guys are aware A&M loves to speak of the other education, right? Uh, not just the classroom education, but the other education that some of you guys major in or doing extra credit in while you have a 2.0, right? And so any university official who speaks of the other education, you guys are like, amen, preach that, right? Uh, and so here's the deal. In Daniel's day, there was an other education that extended beyond the classroom. And so there is in your day. Notice, in a sense, not just the education, but notice the diet that these guys were given. Verse 4. I'm sorry, verse five. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. What was this about? Uh, These specific students or pupils in this educational setting were given choice food, selected food, restricted food, the best food. But there was a problem with it for Daniel and for those who knew the God of Israel. It was also food that had been sacrificed to foreign idols. And so Daniel had a crisis of conscience in this moment. The question was, how would he respond Would he do what everyone else was doing or would he choose to walk in a distinct way? He he realized that in that education, it wasn't just about a classroom, but it was also about what he was going to consume and experience. And Daniel said, I have to walk in a different way. We'll see his response here in a few verses. But ultimately for Daniel, the educational system was pushing on him, not just book knowledge, 
but also a realm of experience and a consumption of diets. It's not just about the stomach. In fact, every educational system, every university system does this. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, our college staff was praying on a campus, praying for you guys, praying for the freshmen that were coming, praying for what God would do. Uh, in one of our prayers, one of our interns, he doesn't know I'm going to do this, but his name's Andrew Murphy, who you guys may know, and we'll see around. But he's in the middle of a prayer, and he prays about the college campus, and he says, this is a place where alcohol is a god and sex is a sport. I almost had to just stop the prayer because I was like, that will preach, right? And so, but he's right on, all right? Andrew Murphy, I'm quoting him right here for you guys, all right? <laughs> College where alcohol is a god and sex is a sport, that, will, that, is a, that just sounds awesome, right? But it's true that this experience that you're stepping into is not just about the classroom, right? In terms of alcohol, in terms of sex, even for you guys who are incoming freshmen, if you went to fish camp, I know they were talking about sex, sexual orientation, and what you should expect and what's normal. All right, A&M, Blend, the university settings are speaking way beyond the classroom. And so don't be confused about the other education. All right, don't be confused. The question is, how does your faith intersect with what you're hearing? And don't be surprised because it's not just about alcohol and it's not just about sex. It's also about religion. A&M and Blend, any university setting in our country is going to step into those arenas as well. They're going to talk about having a real divide between that which is sacred and secular, but they step into our world as well. They step straight into religion. You'll take religion classes. You'll take science classes. They will speak into worldview and into uh, an understanding of a God and a creator and who you are, all right? In fact, notice what happens for Daniel, verse seven. Notice uh, what happens to he and his friends. Then the commander of the officials, they assign new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. It's fascinating that I'm going to give you guys two examples. Daniel's name originally meant my judge is God. All right, my judge is Yahweh. His new name, Belteshazzar, means uh, Bel's prince. Bel was one of the Babylonian uh, pagan gods, all right? His other friend, uh, Hananiah, whose name meant Yahweh, has shown grace. What a beautiful name of great significance. Uh, His name gets transferred to uh, Shadrach, which means the command of Aku. (laughs) Aku, another Babylonian pagan god, all right? And so here's the deal. In this educational system for Daniel and his friends, they were renamed. And it wasn't just about cute renaming so that it sounded kind of fun and it kind of sounded Babylonian. But the renaming was also about an intention for the adoption of a new God. The Babylonian education extended to religion and yours will as well at A&M and at Blinn. All right? So the question is, what do you do? Aren't names just a cute thing, right? Uh, What's the big deal here? Uh, a few years ago, uh, some friends set us down. Uh, there's a couple who had had a kid. They're about to have another kid. Uh, they were kind of jokesters with us all the time. And they said, hey, we're about to name. We're kind of thinking about naming our kid Canyon. Uh, and Marcy and I go, <laughs> you're crazy. Who's going to name their child Canyon? They thought, we thought they were just joking with us. thought they were just pulling our leg. And then all of a sudden, we begin to backpedal. No, no. They're going to name their child Canyon. <laughs> you know, we're going to backpedal. Some of you guys may know, my actual legal name is Huey. Who in their right mind names their child that, all right? That has been my curse for a lifetime, all right? And so names are not just flippant things, right? Names end up becoming curses that you'll have the rest of your life, all right? It was for me, all right? And so even as these guys are named, it's not just about cute naming, all right? But it's about the adoption and allegiance to a new God. For Daniel and his friends and for you, your education that you're stepping into is an all-encompassing one. Uh, from the bedroom to the boardroom to the classroom, all of it will impact you. So the question is, how do you respond? How does your faith intersect with that world? 
First, I'd say, and the first thing you're going to see that Daniel's going to do uh, is we're going to see that uh, ultimately Daniel's first response is going to be purity. The first response we're going to see, the first thing I want you guys to see is that purity is paramount, all right? Notice Daniel's response in verse 8. Notice what he does. But Daniel made up his mind with that, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel realized that there was a problem for him, all right? Uh, He realized that there was an issue for him. Um, That ultimately that his purity was going to be at stake here. And the issue for him was this. Uh, His purity was of such a big deal that he was going to resolve himself to protect it at all cost. All right? It's fascinating here. He's going to actually have to seek permission because that kind of resolve would come with a great risk as well. That kind of resolve took great risk. And so he has to come before the commander. And notice what the commander says to him in the following verse. Uh, verse 9, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the use of your own age? And then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Daniel realized there was a crisis of conscience in this moment. And he didn't know what he was going to do. He was being pushed in a certain direction and to resist that direction he realized was going to take a huge step of his own conscience and courage. And it was going to come at incredible risk. Here that risk in chapter one works out really well for him. The guard, uh, the, uh, the commander that was in charge of him allows him to not defile himself, allows him not to eat. Uh, and he goes, well, he ends up having an appearance later on that looks better than anyone else who's not, who is eating the food. Uh, and what's fascinating here is if you know the story of Daniel is here in chapter one, this risk works out great for him. Uh, He doesn't suffer calamity. He doesn't suffer tragedy. But just a few chapters later, he gets thrown into a furnace of fire for a uh, unwillingness to defile himself. And a little bit later on, he gets thrown into a lion's den, right? It doesn't always work out so easily for Daniel. But despite that, he realized that his purity was something to be protected. I love a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther says this, There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor popular because his conscience tells him it is right. For you guys, as you step into a university setting, there will be moments that you have to choose what you're going to do. Moments when everyone is moving in a certain direction. Moments when a classroom is moving in a certain discussion. Moments when your circle of friends is going to choose a certain kind of thing to participate in. And you, if you know Jesus Christ, you're going to have a conscience of, do you please them or do you please God? The question is, what are you going to do? It's easy to see the cultural risk that's right in front of you. If you, if you maintain your purity, if you abstain, and if you pull back, it could cost you friends. It can cost you respect. But what's harder to see is that if you don't, there are spiritual risks to that as well. Paul will say to Timothy that there were those who did not maintain a good conscience and they suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. It's not that they lost their salvation. It's that their spiritual life was ruined by a series of poor choices. For you guys, as you step into the university setting, let me challenge you, realizing that your education is all-encompassing. There will be moments that you need to make a choice. Will you honor the Lord himself, or will you go with the flow with where everyone else is going? For you in your freshman year, as you are circling to find friends, you may have that crisis initially and early in the fall. Will you trust the Lord to provide you friends that will allow you to honor him, or will you go with the flow with the first ones you find? Even if they speak of him in a way that's dishonoring, even if they move toward that which is wicked. How will you respond? What will you do? It's fascinating. I think for the church, by and large, has got this purity thing down. 
The church as it steps into culture, the church as it has a, a place in culture has gotten the separation and the holiness and the purity thing down. Frankly, the church by and large just pulls back and retreats and has absolutely left the cultural arena at large, all right? One of my favorite quotes comes from a guy named Don Eberly, and he says this, the Christians are understandably dismayed that the culture has become unhitched from its Judeo-Christian roots. However, they refuse to acknowledge that in literally millions of decisions made by Christians themselves, that this unhitching was produced by a massive retreat from the intellectual, the cultural, and the philanthropic life of the nation. While evangelicals count millions of members, the number of evangelicals serving at the top of America's powerful culture-shaping institutions, like a major university or a publishing house, could be seated in a single school bus. The church has got purity down. We just bailed on the whole thing. We want to honor our purity. We want to pull back and be separate and distinct. We're good at that. The problem is we pulled off into our own schools, our own coffee shops, our own bookstores, our own churches, completely detached, unhitched from the world at large, which is why I want to come in on this topic this fall and speak to culture because the church has missed the boat. It's not just about purity. If all we have is purity, what we've done is we've offended and we've separated, but we have no impact whatsoever, no impact. So how do you and I maintain our purity and yet engage the culture with excellence? How do we do that? How do we maintain that kind of tension? That's where we're going to head this morning with Daniel's example. And that's where we're going to head every week through this series. Whether it's about sex, whether it's about economics, whether it's about politics, whether it's about social media or social justice. It doesn't matter where we go. How do we maintain our purity? But even more so, how do we not leave the scene but engage it with excellence? Daniel's response here to the education system is fascinating to me. Notice what Daniel does. Notice his achievement, beginning in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel gets a 4-0. He knocks it out of the ballpark. He realizes that the education is all-encompassing. He realizes that the education can cause him to morally compromise himself, but he doesn't take off and leave, all right? He doesn't unhitch from it. In fact, he maintains his presence in it and he knocks it out of the ballpark. 4-0. In fact, notice how he goes on further in verse uh, 18. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Notice how Daniel stands out. The king talked with them and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So that they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king had consulted them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all of the realm. (laughs) Daniel realized the threat to his personal purity, but he didn't check out. He didn't check out. In fact, he pursued that arena with a kind of excellence that knocked it out of the ballpark and set him apart from everyone else who was there. All right? How do you and I maintain our purity and pursue excellence in the academic arena, Daniel is a wonderful example. All right. And I'll tell you guys, for all of us who know Jesus Christ and are passionate about our faith, the day is over for us to be slacking it with school. All right. Uh, Your parents will appreciate this moment. All right. Uh, I want us to be the best in school. I want us to be the kinds of students that professors look at and go, man, they have it together. They show a kind of respect, a a zeal to learn, a zeal to grow, a desire to achieve that is not misplaced for all the wrong reasons, but is placed for the right reasons for the glory of God, right? 
Daniel knocks it out of the ballpark in the academic arena, and I want you guys to as well. I want you guys to step into group projects, and I want you guys to carry more than your weight. I want you guys to serve your fellow classmates. I want you guys to step in the classroom and respect teachers and listen and grow and learn and submit assignments that are excellent, all right? To pursue this arena with excellence, and here is why. Your achievement can have eternal consequences. It's far too long that we've made a divide between that which is sacred and secular. There's not such a divide, all right? Daniel realized there was a potential for his compromise here, but it did not prevent him pursuing it with all that he had. It was where God had put him. God has put you as a minority status in the different degree and major that you're a part of so that you will pursue it to the best of your abilities and be as faithful as you can in it to him and to yourself, right? It's amazing. You're going to see a pursuit of excellence and an impact of excellence. If you know the book of Daniel, if you know where the story goes, Daniel will get positioned in charge of the Babylonian kingdom, all right? A moment will come when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. No one can interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar is ready to kill all of the conjurers, all of the vision casters, all of the magicians. He's going to wipe them all out. Word gets to Daniel, and Daniel is the only one who can uh, interpret the dream, all right? As a result, Daniel gets awarded and gets promoted, and he ends up having it in charge of the kingdom at large, all right? Because of Daniel's excellence, he gets put in a position to bring about a kind of righteousness, a kind of justice, a kind of fruitfulness for the kingdom of Babylon that only God can do. Ultimately, your education is an opportunity to achieve in such a way that God can land you in a spot to achieve for him things in careers and in callings and in futures that you maybe have never have imagined. Being in a church, being in ministry, going to the mission field is not the only way for you to honor God. Right? In fact, the great majority of you will not be called to that. And your school is a setup to what God is wanting to do with you in the future. So pursue it with excellence so that you land in a, posi- in a position for him to use you to the maximum of your glory and the maximum of your gifts and the maximum of your strengths. We're going to come later on in the fall and talk about career and calling, not just about ministry. Talk about what is God doing in vocation and jobs and business and medicine and how can you honor him there? We're going to come to that. So we're going to cover a really wide range this semester, but I think education, really, I wanted to speak to that this morning as you guys begin. So that you would begin Monday morning with a whole different perspective on this whole process. With a sense of joy, a sense of calling from the divine God himself. Your leader is not your professor, but it's God. It's God who's put you in that classroom to honor him the way you walk that out. One of my favorite examples of all of this uh, uh, is uh, Jackie Robinson. Some of you guys might have seen the movie 42 this summer. Uh, had a chance to rent it and, and check it out. Great story. I think you guys may all know the story of Jackie Robinson, but the first African-American baseball player ever to jump into the major league uh, circuit, all right? Uh, what's fascinating is his distinction was obvious, right? First African-American. First one was a skin that was not white. He stood out. It was obvious, right? The issue was not his distinction, but how did he have such a huge impact on the game of baseball and also on his culture at large? It was not his distinction alone, but it was the way that he pursued the game of baseball with excellence. All right? He would step into that game and he would have ridicule after ridicule. <laughs> he would have people blast him and blast him and make fun of him and mock him. And sure, he had every right and every opportunity to mock them back, but he showed a moral purity in his response to them. But secondly, and I think more importantly, in the midst of the game of baseball, he brought an excellence and a giftedness to it that changed the game of baseball and changed the culture at large. Jackie Robinson moved the very horizons of our culture and I think the very boundaries sometimes even of the kingdom of God in his day and time. 
See, when there's moral purity and there's the achievement of excellence, those two combined allows the man of God to impact the culture in a way that moves horizons forward, that makes the impossible possible. All right. And that's where we're headed this fall. That's what we want to speak to. That's what we want to kind of illustrate and show. How does that work at each of these different arenas? How do we do that? That's what we're going to have. We're going to end this morning with an opportunity for you guys to respond in worship. I want you guys to have an opportunity to kind of come before the Lord as a new semester begins and say, Lord, hey, what is it you have for me? What is it you are calling me to? Maybe for you guys, you're incoming freshmen, you're trying to figure out this whole thing and you're wondering what in the world is happening tomorrow? I don't even know where my classes are, right? Uh, For some of you guys, you're uh, wondering if you're going to graduate. Let me just say, wherever you are, I want to challenge you to ask, hey, what has God called you to be? Who are you? What is your identity as a person and a believer in Jesus Christ? And secondly, what's he called you to? How are you going to go about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known? Because that and that alone is where the greatest glory comes. Because he is one who is utterly, infinitely glorious and majestic in all that we have. And our lives are his.